Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Thursday the 25th of February, an online panel discussion took place focusing on London-based entrepreneurs and the impact of the pandemic on entrepreneurship. The university's alumni regional ambassador for London, James Clark, hosted the discussion with a panel of four university alumni. The panel was made up of Todd Nicholson, founder and director of Bear at the New Zealand Bear Collective, Stu McKinlay, founder and creative director of Yeasty Boys, Jesse Healy, digital marketing consultant and founder of Webtopia, and Tubbs Wanagasakera, founder of Sacred. Thanks everyone for joining this evening. My name's James Clark. I'm the university's alumni regional ambassador here in London, and I'm gonna be the host for today's discussion. So I think jumping in, let's start with our first questions. Uh, first question, and really one for all of the panelists. Did you always have a desire to set up your own business? And how did you know when you had the right idea? Um, so let's start with that. Any particular one of you want to start with that question? Maybe Todd? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I have to say straight off, I think I, I feel a bit of a fraud when we've got Tubbs on on, on this uh, panel because he's the OG when it comes to, to entrepreneurs in, in, in the UK. But um, no, I didn't really have a plan to, to have my own business. Um, I was... Uh, initially when I came over I was working in contracting and, and management consultancy and kind of ha happy to to move between industries and change jobs and um, but what I was working on I think was was a bit of an anti-CV what I didn't want to do anymore um, and I think you know I got to the point where I, I was in change management so that meant a lot of uh, reorgs a lot of downsizing a lot of um, uh, less than positive stuff I suppose um, so I did feel I needed a bit of a change, and and the, the catalyst was probably being emotionally, mentally, physically sort of fed up with with my my former existence. So I've never really liked uh, having a boss or taking instructions. So an opportunity came along to work in beer, um, which uh, was was kind of more serendipitous, I suppose, than a specific uh, idea, but. Um, and as I started working in beer, I was working primarily in in um, in brand uh, for for some breweries, and I guess I I felt that there was an opportunity to pull things together and tell a New Zealand story and represent New Zealand beer and breweries in a way that wasn't currently being done. So, so short short answer: No, I didn't always plan to to run a business. It was probably more accidental, coincidental. But here we are. Yeah, I was sort of the same. Like it was sort of accidental. So I always worked like I always had this career working in digital marketing and I really liked what I did digital marketing but I would just get bored over and over and over and I could never stay in the same company for more than like a year um and I forced myself to once and it was the worst idea ever I was so bored but eventually the, the thing that gave me the push was that I got made redundant twice in a year and the second time I got made redundant I was actually seven months pregnant and so I couldn't go get another job because no one would hire me when I was seven months pregnant. So um, I just started freelancing right then and there um, whilst pregnant. And then once I had my baby, I was like, oh, there's quite a lot of freelance work out here. And from there, it just all just blossomed into my agency. So the freelance work grew so much and there was stuff I didn't want to be doing myself. So I then started the agency. But yeah, the catalyst for me was actually the double redundancy in a year. So that gave me the push I needed to realize I just need to rely on myself now because... Nothing is certain. Cool. Thanks, Jesse. Um, Tubbs, maybe you want to go next, um, particularly the intro that Todd gave you as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for that, Todd. <laughs> uh, I think from my perspective, I think after I graduated from Vic, I was quite lucky to uh, get the job at Fisher & Pico. I think when I did that project, it was a sponsored project. And at the age of 23 or 22 or 23, when I got that, it was a dream project um, to get the dish drawer. And so spending three and a half years designing that, launching that, it was um, pretty out there to um, sort of tick off the box of CV of designing stuff that and in a strange way, I sort of fulfilled a, a dream of something quite cool, quite early. So when I came over to Europe, I went to the US uh, to uh, did some work for Nike uh, because the guy who worked at 
uh, Fisher and Paco before me took on the job at Nike and he's now director of design there. Um, and so I sort of did some sort of freelancing work for them, then came to Europe and I thought, no, I kind of like, I was racing cars and I knew I was quite good at putting teams together and fundraising on my own. Even while I was at Vic Uni <clears throat> and Fisher and Paykel, I put my own team together. So over here, I was quite good to slip into the commercial side. And then I sort of got into that industry. And so for me, it was never, I was never driven by sort of um, the, the prospect of a title or making money. It was just passion driven of, I love um, being in motorsport. I love design, I'm putting the two together, being as a, a commercial director putting deals together was what I loved uh, and being at track side at races and managing uh, like a writer called Aaron Slide, who was obviously a New Zealand legend, who became a friend of mine over the late nineties. So I started managing him to his end when he transitioned to cars. So it sort of all sort of escalated quite nicely. And luckily for me uh, in a lovely way in the two thousands until obviously the bubble burst a bit. And that was the first time I had to sort of suddenly go, oh, this is not a gravy train that's always going to be there. Let's, you may have to fall back on my design skills or whatever. You never know. Because um, the motorsport industry went through a hell of a blip. And that's when the sacred idea came out. And so then I thought, okay, there's something here. There's a market here. So it was really designed right from the start. The authenticity was the, the coffee, and it still is the core. But my passion to then make it a brand was the real thing. And it took me been 16, 17 years to, to diversify it and to create it. And it's now been a year where it's not had to be evolved because being in Europe, it's so high, high paced with its tech or the way it's done. And then, of course, the number of competition behind you. It's a hell of a trial to be out here. And so that's the cool thing of being in London. It keeps you on your toes. Because if you take three months off and come back, it's moved so fast. And so for me, that the buzz was uh, really pushing myself out here. Thanks, Tom. Um, Stu, do you want to answer that as well? What led you, did you always have that desire to set up Yeasty Boys or um, what led to that? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, and I sort of always called myself an accidental entrepreneur. But when I kind of look back at my life, I kind of, I'm a serial entrepreneur, I guess, in some ways. So I had a job when I was like a young, no boss, uh, you know, going into the lake, a golf club down the road, picking out golf balls and earning, you know, 10 times the amount per hour that my mates were earning doing paper runs and things like that. Uh, and then I went off to, um, to university and like through school and university, I kind of like cruised through. I think I was probably like a lot of people here, a little bit bored by you know, sort of formal education. And then uh, when I left university, I like uh, luckily had worked right through university at ANZ Bank and got a redundancy, which was quite nice, paid off most of my student loan, took a trip around Europe. And then when I came back, uh, I actually had a summer working, uh, fighting on Lord of the Rings, actually, uh, as most New Zealanders have done. Uh, for a few months and then uh, and then I worked in the um, health sector and this is where I got into metadata so I was um, my, sort of my my university uh, experience was all around sort of decision analysis sort of stuff around statistics and things like that uh, and so I got into metadata with the Ministry of Health um, I went to move out of Wellington so I quit my job and they sort of asked me to come back and do some work for them uh, on contract uh, and that ended up sort of rolling through sort of 15 years of uh, different contracts where I sort of just had work lining up for me, um, again, sort of working on my own, doing my own thing, being the only independent specialist sort of in my area in the country. Um, so just had work sort of waiting for me all the time. Um, but during that time, uh, Sam Pozaneski, another a fellow Victoria University graduate um, who I'd been friends with sort of from the end of school days, he had gone overseas and uh, we were both really into beer. We just like always communicated via beer. He did all his travel around Europe based around, you know, famous beer cities. And I was back in New Zealand sort of being involved in uh, helping the sort of New Zealand Brewers Guild set up the uh, the Society of Beer Advocates, which is a consumer group around beer. Uh, and I'd started up a home brew business. Uh, and then I started Yeasty Boys at the same time with Sam. So I had sort of like, you know, three or four committees plus two businesses running plus a day job. Uh, and then had three kids under three. <laughs> so I kind of thought I got to like shed a lot of the stuff and concentrate on one thing. Um, and I kind of made the wrong decision, probably picking beer 
it's like the least lucrative of them all, but um, uh, certainly the most fun. And it's taken me to the most interesting places, I guess. Uh, I'm slightly jealous of my old life, you know, having worked for uh, sort of four years on the National Immunisation Register and uh, Incommunicable Disease. I'm kind of jealous of the rock star life they're all living now, you know. Um, part of the reason I left was, you know, I felt like an artist in metadata and no one appreciated my work. Uh, and so I came into beer and now you sort of get hate mail about your beer and uh, and you sort of look at the uh, what's going on in the sort of uh, communicable disease data in the world at the moment and think, wow, it'd be, be pretty awesome to be working there right now. And, and Stu, what made you make that um, decision to focus on on beer rather than metadata? Like, you, it sounds like you had a whole bunch of options open to you, but you chose to go down that beer path. What, what was it that um, made you make that decision? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I guess. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the glamorous looking one. Yeah. It was the one that kind of like drew me to it. It was, uh, you know, I was pretty good at what I did before and I really, really enjoyed it. And that's probably what made it hard to move full time to, you know, Yeasty Boys, because um, we actually ran it for about six years part time. Uh, so, you know, it was, and we were global by then already exporting to, uh, you know, at least half a dozen countries, probably up to about eight or 10 countries. Uh, you know, all part-time, but it's just, you know, it's a struggle when you're trying to, you know, move between three different jobs and, uh, you know, and also be on committees and stuff and being drawn in sort of different directions. Um, it was just, I thought it was a good time to uh, to concentrate on one thing. Makes sense. Um, and I'm going to ask Tubbs a kind of a similar question. You know, you were focused on motorsport and then suddenly you changed to coffee and it sounds like you could have taken your career in many different directions. Was it, like what Stu said, was it the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that took you to the sacred uh, chain of coffee? Or, you know, what was it that, that made you go from motorsport uh, to Absolutely, 100%. Um, <laughs> um, I think motorsport was amazing in the late 90s and 2000s. And um, I think I was quite... Fortunately, in a strange way, there's nothing was ever planned, but I always built very careful relationships with people I met over the years. And I always believed that, you know, if you got on with someone, you didn't know who they were, it didn't matter whether they were a junior press officer or it didn't matter, just always build relationships. And so as I got and I set up sacred, it was amazing how there were times where I thought that well, I can default with my comfort zones, which was my relationships that I had in motorsport. And then being the marketer sort of in my head, um, the concept was, okay, how can I bring in a brand to really get the message across as to what sacred was? If you line up a whole bunch of coffee bags in front of you, how do you differentiate? Same as if you line up a whole bunch of cars. I was lucky that I built up relationships with certain brands and going back 2001, 20 odd years ago, I had worked with Porsche back then uh, with Aaron and um, the people who were quite junior then had obviously moved up the ranks. So it was quite a nice relationship, just a phone call and a chat here in the paddock and um, the relationship started and now it's obviously 10 or 15, 14 years together. We've been as a partnership. We've been launching products today in Saudi Arabia with Formula E. Um, but the, the buzz for me was, I, I, I sort of was quite lucky. I'm still single and I, I loved the travel. I loved that I was able to make, over time, I managed to make four or five years of sacred after the hard grind of it. I was able to bring the motorsport element back into it and make it part of the brand and the marketing and the whole platform. So I brought the good parts of my lifestyle where I didn't have to get up at seven o'clock, put a team outfit on, uh, be sober, <clears throat> or I put a lot of uh, ice cream and turn up to meet guests. Instead, I turn up as a sponsor, which means you can rock up whenever you feel like it, and then start selling the product. So I, I worked out to flip it in my favor, and but in the environments that I loved, I was comfortable in, and do what I did. So I, I sort of created a lifestyle around my brand, but with still an objective of being uh, a business makes sense and it sounds like you were able to bring in a lot of that design um experience that you had kind of just transferring from one industry to another yeah i'm still that's one of my things i'm still meticulous about just before this call today an hour before this i just signed off on a, a new livery for esports for iRacing 
for the uh, circuit brand because they use it on multiple countries for platforms. But I'm still with all the designers before I approve the championship starts in about an hour's time now. Uh, I sign up all the liveries, so I'm still very particular as to how the brand is used and which drivers can or people can use it. Because the last thing you want is like a 12-year-old driver who's going to flip the car and just it, it can destroy your brand within seconds. So that's, uh, that's I'm meticulous about still the brand and the design to this day. I love it. It's fantastic you can combine those things. Um, so I want to move on to the next question um, that we've got, which is talking about the process of getting um, your businesses established. And I think particularly it would be good to hear about some of the, the challenges and adversity that you had to overcome uh, in setting those businesses up. Um, you know, anyone feel particularly going first around that question? Jesse, uh, maybe tackle that. I mean, I'd have to say it was pretty easy. I just like registered my company and then I just started operating and then I started using freelancers and then I reached a point where freelancers were driving me nuts so I started hiring full-time people I only really started hiring full-timers this year um, after the pandemic hit funnily enough like I you'd think you know when it was so unstable but I actually was growing so much I just realized I couldn't keep growing with freelancers so no, I don't think there was any like adversity in terms of getting set up, but I guess like just growing a business just has a lot of growing pains, you know, think there's fires to put out constantly and you've got to kind of develop systems and processes, like all the boring stuff, you've just got to do it. So I don't know, it wasn't that hard. I'd say do it if you're thinking about it. Was it a challenge going from um, hiring freelancers um, to hiring employees who maybe you feel a bit more responsibility for? And, you know, there's certainly, you know, I guess more challenges of making sure you're meeting their paychecks each month as well. Yeah, I think definitely it's a mindset thing. Like you've got to like get around like, okay, so now like eight, nine people rely on me to pay their mortgage. But you just can't think of it like that. You've got to think of it as like, the business is paying their mortgage and the business is healthy. So it's not me, Jesse, it's my, it's the business. And I'm making sure that I'm putting, you know, we've got enough runway in the business to pay wages for a certain amount of time. And we've got everything sound and we know our margins and we we've got all that stuff. And as long as that's fine, then the business will pay the employees and we'll be okay. So I think if you've got the foundations and you kind of know your numbers, that is really important. Then you won't feel so out of control about all the, you know, like meeting payroll. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I can I can I think that's something that's really important, especially in this country, because as I noticed when I grew the business and over the first few years, it's okay because you're sort of you had a backstop of a certain amount of money in the bank, but if you go through a bad month or a blip here and there. It's only sort of one day, some days you step back, especially when you're signing off your accounts in the company at the end of the tax year next year, and you suddenly go, you know, your liabilities for your payroll is half a million or plus, you know, and then you go, holy cow, that's okay, that's a lot of people that are depending on you. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you step back and you go, okay, wow, so, and it puts a bit of pressure on you because it's grown organically in a nice way. Uh, and then, of course, unfortunately, you know, now we're forced forward to where we are today. Um, the flip side of, you know, the furloughs and redundancies and everything else was quite heartbreaking. And in my case, I had to put a, a very clear, because I'm very close to my staff, I always have been. So um, as sort of hard as it was, I sort of made myself a sort of private list as to who are the staff that had dependents, who had kids, who were married, who had mortgages, liabilities, et cetera, versus the loyalty of who's worked the longest. It's a very tough decision to make, but you know, I, you had to put a human element into it as well because it's the real world. You can't just draw a line across the balance sheet. And those are things that are some that you're sort of never prepared for. You're prepared for redundancies or a downturn here and there. You know, you can drop one ops manager here or a couple of managers in a store or something but not this level of uh, complete restructure. Um, and that was quite an interesting thing and something that was new for me. So it also shows that you never stop learning <laughs> uh, in business. Yeah, I think for me, like having like the runway to keep paying people for a certain amount of time is really important as a business person, because actually the second redundancy that I was, when I was seven months pregnant, the employer went completely bust didn't pay us our last paycheck, didn't pay us any redundancy pay, didn't pay me my maternity pay, and there was no money. And it, like that shocked me that they had hired me, you know, like this 
person getting you know who was pregnant and all of that or who, who got pregnant like that they would do that like it seemed really I understand businesses sometimes have to operate on more of like razor thin margins but yeah I didn't I didn't want my business to be like that so I was really careful another small thing is also for any entrepreneurs uh, don't kid yourself and put yourself on the payroll from day one because a lot of, lot of entrepreneurs forget that and they put themselves last and they think they can live off savings or credit cards. Don't kid yourself. Genuinely put yourself on a, a real salary because you should come first because without you, there's no business. So if you're having, you don't sleep well and you're stressed out, it just, it does um, sort of, everyone portrays it. So put yourself first as well. That's a very key part that a lot of people forget. Yeah. Todd or Stu, anything you want to add to that? How, how, long, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Challenges. Um, oh, I mean, you know, certainly setting up the, the business uh, side of things was probably fairly fairly straightforward, but importing alcohol and uh, distributing alcohol uh, has a fair bit of red tape, um, but we kind of... Um, you know, Stuart, Yeasty Boys and myself were doing it really at the same time in terms of as an importer distributor and as a brewery over in the UK. So, um, But I would say you know, that, the, that the last few years have had, had a fair amount of challenge uh, getting the suppliers right, um, getting the beer right. Uh, yeah, we work on a three to six month uh, planning cycle of breweries brewing the beer, shipping and, and releasing in market. So seismic changes in taste like Everyone going from bottles to cans in a very short space of time was was pretty significant. But the most the most obvious challenges would be the um, uh, the the, you know, the the vote to leave the UK uh, for the UK to leave the EU, which had a huge huge impact on currency, uh, which meant the beer that I had on terms I had sold for less than I was paying for it uh, essentially and. Um, and then obviously the instability that 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 came with that. You know, we, we export still fifty percent of of the beer we bring into the UK. We export back out again, most of that into Europe. So um, I would say the first three years were probably more challenged than wins. But I've said this a few times, and and you know, the the worst days of this job and and this business are better than the best days of my my previous career. Um, because I still I'm doing something I love. Uh, I work in New Zealand beer. I get to talk about New Zealand beer. I mean, it's not that side of things is pretty easy. Um, and worst case, if the business goes belly up, I can hide in a bunker somewhere and drink lots of barley wine and drink all the good beer that I've got here. But but no, I think you know starting a business without really knowing the industry, without really, um, I, I mean, it was not really a clear plan but having a lot of passion for what 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 i was selling um but yeah i i i no end of challenge but i think you in in some ways i suppose that's what makes you yeah that, that's what gives you usp as well if you can overcome it um lots of others can't so um but no plenty of challenge plenty of challenge that's for sure I think um, there's one question that's come in, which is, is there value in the wait and see, wait and see how things are going? And I think maybe the, the spin I would put on that is, how do you know when the right time is to expand your business? Uh, you know, whether it's taking on another employee or Todd's, you know, opening up another store or, you know, Todd um, kind of making that decision to expand into actually brewing your own beer. Um, it'd be good to kind of get a, a feedback from you guys, uh, you know, around how do you assess that right time to make that next step in, in growing your business? Uh, in my case, I think right now, uh, the, everything is a blank slate is the way I treated it from around May last year. So around May last year, when things started to go, what I call kind of crazy, um, I decided based upon sort of various feedback of people that uh, I had to redo the entire model of what the future was for Sacred. Now, I was quite lucky that the brand had 50 and 1600 years of traction and it had credibility, it had uh, marketplace. We had great clients globally. So for me to restructure it and take away the parts that I felt were going to be obsolete 
was in some ways easy, but still it comes with a cost. So when you're um, eliminating certain uh, high street locations, sites, leases, rents, etc., uh, are not cheap, but then you counter with it against potential of uh, moving large scale online and also moving into new territories. So for me, the biggest market now I see future is obviously Middle East. And uh, I took the decision obviously quite early around uh, if I took it just before COVID, when I visited Dubai and that part of the region for a couple of races and met some key people there. So I was in Dubai for the coffee symposium in November in 2019, 2020, uh, February, I was there just before COVID for the uh, 24 hours. And as I started, started going to looking at Dubai anyway, before this happened. So that helped that I had already uh, had some sort of face-to-face meetings and got a lay of the land, literally. But the, as, as you were talking earlier, Todd, about uh, the Brexit scenario was something that we could have planned on our own and dealt with, but not with the COVID madness on top of it or below it, however you want to see it, it took a lot of energy. And that's when, like you said, Todd, you got, if you're not passionate about what you do or you don't believe in what you do, you, you, wouldn't, have, you wouldn't make it because... Even with all the, the the luxury that I've had, uh, I think I've had with the brand and it's you know everything I've uh, got around it. I'll be honest, there were moments where I thought, "Done it, screw it, I'm forty nine. Let's 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 go back to New Zealand. Uh, I got a nice farm somewhere in the middle of North Island. I'm just gonna move back there. That's it. I'm out." But you can't do that because our, our, our DNA is not designed like that. But that's the easiest thing in the world to do. And I'm a competitive person, and I'm. I need to pull back and go, no, we can't make this work. So I relocated, I set up a, a, an operation, I registered the brand out of Germany and I'm now in Poland. I've got a factory that does the capsules there. So we are looking now at um, you know, starting out there on its own entity, uh, keeping the UK as its own entity. Now it sounds easy, but again, in the real world, if you're going to do this or you want to do this, think where you want to locate your business because each of those things cost thousands of pounds. It's not just a matter of saying I'm going to set up in Holland or Netherlands tomorrow because Uber's there and eBay's there or you know wherever. Uh, it costs a lot of money. So you've got to make sure that your model to go with it, at least clients and businesses. But think hard and there's nothing wrong in setting up in Europe. And I think that could be a big marketplace for the future. Um, or just take, keep it purely UK driven and just absolutely, because there could be a massive, like New Zealand, this could be about New Zealand times, you know, 60 million people. If you make it work, it could work here. So just be prepared that whatever your business is, uh, pick your market. That's the only thing. I think it'll be quite, for the next decade, it'll be very regionalized in its own way. It'll be Europe, Middle East, etc. So pick your market and own it, is what I say. Be like me and just be global and virtual. <laughs> so my yeah. team are all over the world and like my clients are all over the world and we advertise all over the world and we're kind of borderless. It's crazy. I got my sister. Yeah. She works in Melbourne for me right now because she retired uh, for her. Uh, since, uh, she's a coder yeah. and she was Oracle, etc. And she, uh, in fact, she did a lot of work for Victoria University. <laughs> she lives in Melbourne and um, she retired last year. And so when this happened, restructuring, she said, oh, can I do all your IT stuff and all your online stuff? I said, yeah, sure. It's going to cost me so much. So it's been a great timeline. So she does it overnight. Uh, right now, she's probably up NASA. So she's working. And all my ordering, logistics, everything, I moved out to Melbourne. And so it's been fantastic. So she handles all the orders there. And overnight, she does invoicing. It's factory. sends it all over here to uh, in London. In the morning, my ops guys then top it all up and we send it out. So... Yeah, it, it, it has been an interesting way of doing things. In the past, it's all been down here, but now we use Australia, so yeah, it's cool. I um, just want to jump into the, oh, sorry, Todd, were you going to say something? I was going to say back to that, um, you know, about whether now is the right time, you know, do it now or, or, or um, you know, is, is there value in, in sort of waiting and seeing? I guess it's, it's that, you know, um, you're damned if you do, aren't you? I mean, if, if you've got a great idea that you think will work um, and someone else does it and then makes it work, but I always figure it's really good to be the second person to discover things, you know, because generally the first person that does doesn't make the money out of it, but those that, that come along afterwards will probably will. But, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah I'm, 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 I'm a 100% believer in that. 
I always say, let someone else be the trailblazer. Even in coffee, yeah. I think it's one thing, just as an example, I always let the sort of, as a, I'm not being dismissive for anyone in Eastland and all that, but going back, it's a three, four years ago, I let those guys do the cold drip, whatever crazy funnel, whatever, go nuts, fill your boots. And I watched out of 15 ideas, which ones would whittle through. And then I'll take a year and then I'll go I'll pick that one. And that's when we just, I just like, there's no point. I, I can't afford to do all these crazy things. So I, I, I completely back you on that. Let someone else do the crazy stuff. and then Yeah, we don't do TikTok ads in my agency. We're just waiting <laughs> till other people waste their money on TikTok ads and figure it out first. Yeah. <laughs> Um, moving on, like we've already kind of touched on it, but you know, coronavirus obviously has had, uh, or COVID has had a, a massive impact uh, across all the, your industries. It'd be good to understand and talk a little bit more about how your businesses have been affected and you know, how you're doing things differently compared to before the pandemic. Um, I don't know, Stu, maybe you want to start off with that question. Yeah, well, obviously, um, you know, kind of, 90% of our potential customers in the UK uh, in pubs and restaurants and cafes are all closed now. So um, it certainly changed the market considerably. Uh, and, you know, without a doubt, without the furlough scheme, we would have less staff than we do today. Uh, so we've managed to hang on to everyone. We've worked through with a combination of sort of full furlough and part-time furlough sort of over the last year uh, and in continuing to do that. Um, we moved into a bit of online sales as well, uh, which is going quite well with, you know, the limited sort of uh, money that we've thrown at it in that regard. And certainly just seeing the opportunities, you know, in that regard in the future as well. Um, you know, we're sort of sitting back and assessing how things are going to change in regards to the sort of on-trade, you know, pubs, restaurants, cafes in the future as well. Um, you know, where to concentrate on. Funnily enough, before the, the pandemic, we were already thinking about the commuter towns in London being uh, around London being, you know, really good opportunities for us. Every time you go and visit someone there in a pub, they're excited to see you. Whereas if you go to a pub in London, you're like the 15th person of the day. Uh, and, you know, they're like, oh, my God, here comes another sales person. So, um, you know, that opportunity's just like, you know, gone up tenfold, I guess, because so many people are, you know, not going to be going back into offices. No matter what happens, you know, London is going to, it's going to be like World War Two. You know, the population of London uh, before World War Two was about the size it is now. It took about 50 years for it to come back to that. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be a similar sort of long-term effect here as well. Um, the central city, you know, is going to be pretty quiet uh, and pretty grim for a lot of people who own a lot of big pubs in that industry, you know. Um, I think, you know, there's two parts to it. There's all of my neighbours in the street here, don't want to go back to commuting two hours every day or two and a half hours every day um they're working from home they're more productive you know they may want to go into the office now and then sometimes they'll need to go more often um but they want to gain some of that time back you know some of the positives that they've seen out of the pandemic uh and then the other thing is you know as a business who would want to have an office in london now you know when you realize how productive your staff can be from home um, you know, potentially you can cut millions out of your expenditure each year from ditching some of those office spaces, you know, which were just there for, you know, that long-term blanket thinking of, uh, you know, we have to have an office in London and people have to come in for it, even though those people were just, you know, training in, walking to the office, sitting at their desk, talking to a couple of people around the office each day and then going home. Um, yeah, so that's going to be a kind of like big long-term changes as we see it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I built my business to be virtual. So I launched the agency two and a half years ago as a virtual agency. So not to have an office and then COVID hit and like the world caught up with me. <laughs> but um, but it's interesting because I think it's helped us for people to understand our business model better. I think some people would have been resistant to an agency that didn't have an office, whereas now they don't even know that we don't have an office because there's no question. They just expect to see a, a living room behind you or whatever. Um, so it's kind of interesting. But I think, yeah, it's exciting the thought of like these smaller places being more accessible to people. Like one of my team members lives in the south of France. I'm thinking of moving to Wanaka and my business will keep operating here in, in London and I'll just have someone who's, you know, doing stuff in the day and I can 
do stuff while they sleep, whatever. But I just, I think it's exciting that um, COVID's kind of opened up that that side of things. Um, you, you kind of touched on it, but can I open it up to, to everyone? Like there's obviously been this surge in online shopping how have you guys had to react or act, reacted to that or found opportunities through that? Um, like, you know, tubs or stew or uh, Todd, like, you know, particularly for you guys, have you had to kind of adapt and find ways to sell online and how, how has that gone for you? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we have to, we've had to focus more online, but I think everybody did. So, the noise, I guess, how do you get through the noise that there is around, you know, every brewery, every importer, every beer sales, you know, suddenly went to, we've got to sell online. So I think that, that certainly to a point, um, you, you have to make sure you've got the infrastructure there to be able to sell online, but but more so I think we, we, we really had to, to think about either offering something different or finding a different audience. Um, so one of the things that we've changed, yeah, it's going to be very hard for people to go and drink New Zealand beer at source this year, next year. Um, and so we have kind of this strange like opportunity that's come up that if you want to drink New Zealand beer, really good, fresh New Zealand beer, you must drink it here if you live here. But, but also one of the things that, that we're, I'd, I'd hired a brand and, and social media manager just uh, a few months before uh sort of the first lockdown and you know we've made sure that we've really focused on connecting with like-minded or people that are you know, a lot of new zealand uh artists new zealand uh comedy um uh kiwis in london a lot a lot more so we've found it you know, a lot more around the new zealandness if you will you know we've we've specifically worked with that audience but also yeah we really push the fact the provenance of where the beer comes from um the fact it is unique uh the fact it has the new zealand ingredients yeah that's been our kind of unique selling point i think and what is a really clouded and and you know the, everybody's doing events so everyone was doing quizzes so we started a, a sort of sideline hustle if you will of doing um corporate tastings um which is has has gone pretty well especially when everyone was reaching a point of just saturation with quizzes um so so yeah i think you know, having the online sales and and that sort of infrastructure in place but also really working and i'm sure jesse's the expert in this stuff not 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 me about you know, how do you cut through all that noise uh to offer something that's a bit different but also make sure you're hitting that right audience um which you know, kiwis anybody that's been to new zealand anyone that aspires to go to new zealand and you know, that is our kind of that's our target market if you will Sounds like a good targeting strategy. <laughs> I would definitely um, approve. From from my perspective, it's quite interesting. We had a spike of around four five hundred percent around April May, and that carried on right through till around September. Um, and we, we did have an online um, solution anyway, so we were fine. Uh, it was just uh, we sort of shocked our UPS guy, I guess, for the first few months when he never expected to carry so many boxes out on a daily basis. Um, but what we did do, uh, it was really a transition of our, of our customers who were coming to the cafes that were missing the coffee. So uh, after the sort of around end of May, and when I saw the seconds, and this is going to be ongoing, we took it upon ourselves to, to, to engage more with them and lock them in a bit more and create sort of one-to-one. -one. So I started signing uh, just a card that went with every mail order saying, hey, it's, you know, hope you enjoy sort of thing. Um, little things like that help create a, a bit more of a relationship, something that they would have had if when they, were, they would have come into one of my sites and I would have been there. I'd always sort of, and I had customers who were loyal for 15 years that would come every Saturday sort of thing, you know. And so these, uh, it was great to, to try and get some level of warmth across to these people who are still uh, supporting Sacred. Uh, and then also then, it was the first time I stepped up in by sort of by thrones by force to to bring in the, the 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 racing side of it and the Porsche side and really own that segment of the market because as you said earlier you know everyone was doing 
coffee. Everyone is doing beer, you know, from, I mean, if, if you go on Instagram, there's about, I don't know, 50 different coffee, home delivery, capsule concept, uh, subscription, things that will just bombard you. The same with beer companies. They, they send you four free bottles if you want to click on a couple of shop now things. So how do you, how do you, you know, separate yourself from that and not devalue your brand as well? And that was very important to me. So something I never did was do discounts and do you know, freebies and stuff, but still give something. And how do you get that across? So in my case, I, I, my objective around August onwards was to almost literally own the segment that was into the uh, high net worth, uh, motorsporty sort of that market and say, right, I'm going to own that bit. Still, they, they appreciate coffee. The Kiwi, uh, Kiwis here who understand good coffee, I think they'll be loyal to me. Uh, yes, they have a choice of about you know, eight other Kiwi roasteries, which is great. So I'm not going to try and sort of be, there's no point because that's a New Zealand thing. We don't want to be tall poppy. <laughs> so let's all be equal. Uh, but keep that. That was going to be my baby. And so that mentality came into place. And so that was the strategy I put. And that's what I'm carrying through for this year to get through 21. Cool. Um, I'll ask one more question and then we'll jump into some of the Q&A and I know there are a few questions already waiting but just one question look if we look kind of 12 to 24 months ahead once we're out of lockdown like what does the future hold for each of you aside from you know Jesse maybe moving to Wanaka what are you you know what are the opportunities that you see emerging in the, in the near future? Uh, myself, I will be very close by to you, Jesse. I'll be in uh, somewhere in the middle of the North Island, but I will be coming down to the south to Wanaka because three of my friends have nice houses there. So we've done a house, house, nice house. Uh, farm swap scheme. So I'll be going back and forth. My my idea was anyway, strangely, to uh, put someone in place here to run the UK centralized European operation and move to New Zealand anyway. Uh, I'll be doing that anyway. So for me... It's sacred is a part of me and the whole concept. And so for me, I want to just let it grow organically. But um, I think, like I said earlier, you know, Middle East, um, UK, Europe, let's see how it goes. Because with Brexit, I think I think I mentioned an example the other day. Uh, I'm going to briefly quickly share it to give you an idea of the chaos of a truck going out there, staying outside of the border in Warsaw for 14 days. It came back uh, three days ago cost me two, three thousand pounds for a ton of coffee and purely because of a paperwork for a pallet. And so those sort of crazy stuff um, will take another, I think, six months, maybe a year. I don't know for the UK to work out and Europe. And so for a small, what I call myself, some, some small business in, in scale of, let's say, Ford or Jaguar Land or whatever, I can't budget trucks to be stuck and riding off two, three thousand pounds for a shipment of coffee because that's gone. That's too grand I'll never see. So that, uh, I'd say it's another 24 months minimum before we start trading with Europe properly without any chaos. And we can price it into our products so that we know what we're selling or how we're going to do it. Or we keep it, like I said, regionalized. That's my plan. So right now. Thankfully, we've never sort of concentrated too much on Europe. So we haven't been sort of massively affected um, by, you know, either the pandemic or the, uh, or Brexit. Um, but certainly, you know, we're hearing little things in the industry and uh, there's a lot of kind of like uh, a lot of ideas of things that people think you need to do now that you don't actually have to do for another 18 months and all sorts of stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's uh, I guess the nice situation for us is that all of our stuff is sold X works. So the importer comes and picks them up from us and they take all the risk and uh, they manage all of the sort of paperwork and everything from that side of things. We just have to make sure we have ready for for them what they need um so that's yeah that's quite nice and we've just sort of got our first couple of orders just heading off to europe now um and hoping to sort of you know ramp that up quite a bit but we're also um you know people probably wouldn't believe this but we're also a bit of a virtual business as well you know um obviously we can't send beer virtually uh but we brew under license in new zealand and uh australia as well so we have licensed partners there who manage everything for us uh, we just oversee things around brand and recipes and things like that. And they run the whole kind of uh, production supply chain uh, and all of the accounts and everything. And we've already been looking at that in uh, Europe as well. So I was down in Germany 
November 2019 to talk to a person there about potentially brewing in Germany because again they want bottles there rather than cans like Todd mentioned earlier everyone here moved to cans but uh, in, a, in many parts of Europe especially the sort of traditional beer drinking places they um, they definitely prefer bottles and they've got the big returnable bottle system and things so yeah you just you have to be adaptable and you have to you know think about how things go and I think you know Tubbs touched on it earlier with you need to hold on to what you need what you can control what you need to control and then you need to be able to give up uh to someone else you know either within your company or to um to another business you know whether that's an importer or a distributor or something like that um the ability to do stuff because uh you know in the end as todd will attest um making all the you know uh web sales from your own home uh ends up with rsi when you're um you know, not cut out for it like young kids are these days, you know, making up boxes of mixed beer. Cool. Thanks, Drew. So let's um let's jump into some of the questions. So the first one is from James Gribben, uh, which is with taking the jump from the safety of employment to starting your own business, how drastically, if at all, did you have to change your lifestyle to manage that initial period of instability? That's quite a nice working for uh, an automotive company uh, which had unlimited funds and uh, you know when I took the decision to leave at the time it was BMW and G Rover um, in 2004 or three or four uh, I took a year out to travel and went to Ibiza and most of sacred was conceived out in the summer in uh, 2004 in Ibiza uh, and I've been going to Ibiza for 20 years this is the first year my 21st year that I haven't been there um, and it was a, the toughest thing with, I think, like I said earlier, is that guaranteed on the 28th of the month or whatever it was, eczema did not fall in as your baseline salary, irrelevant of commissions and whatever else you get. Uh, getting used to that and then knowing that whatever you started as your savings or you plowed into this new limited company, that was it. And that once that gets started to burn through, as Jesse, you probably know, as we're talking about run rates and whatnot, um, get used to that. And if you're happy with that and you can sleep well and you'll have sleepless nights, but if you're passionate, like I think all of us are, uh, you'll get through it. You know, you want to sleep this night, it's okay. I mean, we all done our nights at university, so, you know, uh, if you can handle it, you can, I think you should go for it. Yeah, I think it, you have, just have to know your numbers. Like, what do I need to survive? What's the very best? Absolutely. And, uh, don't, don't kid yourself. Yeah, please don't kid exactly. yourself. And assume that you're going to make some sale that just because someone said something positive the night before on a phone call and you hung up, that does not mean anything in Europe, especially, or I think anywhere in the world. Uh, unless you're a purchase order or you're something really in front of you, don't assume anything at four o'clock on a Friday, especially. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you lifestyle-wise, obviously, I obviously missed out on the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that came with the beer industry. So, Stu, I, obviously, we're doing something really different. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, for me, it was actually a lifestyle was a big part of, of wanting to run uh, my own business. And um, you know, I've always worked hard and long hours, but I found that those hours were excessive for, and I wasn't uh, doing something I loved, um, and I wasn't spending enough time at home. And you know, I think that that the, the flexibility that comes with running the business, even though you do work hard, obviously, and it is sometimes hard to to put the laptop down. But um, I would say, from my perspective, you know, the lifestyle uh, certainly has been better. Plus, uh, you know, every time you drink a beer, it's work, it's research, so it's all part and parcel. But no, I think you the 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 rewards that came with the flexibility, as well as um, you know, the, the market that that I'm working in, it's you know, the, there's there's an element of of, of you know, lifestyle there as well. But uh, you know, I came to it a bit later, so probably had, had you know, I'd had a career beforehand. I I. So I haven't yet had to die for my arm, if you will. So. I definitely think, though, if, if you're going into it for freedom, you might need to have a question yourself a little bit because I don't think there's much freedom in the first few years of running a business, not unless you crack onto a lifestyle business straight away. Like, the chances are you'll be less free for quite some time, and I think that's just something you have to be realistic about. Um, 
I'm getting to the point now where I'm not as needed, hopefully, in my business and I can be more free. But I definitely sometimes look back on working, you know, in a nine to five and think of those, that happy freedom that I had back then to do my personal admin or just go for a long lunch or whatever. Well, we have long lunches all the time in the beer industry. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe you do. <laughs> yeah, the only thing is, is that it ends up being that you're on your laptop in bed at, you know, at 11 o'clock at night and then up at five o'clock the next morning or something. Yeah, yeah, certainly um, I think the money thing has never been a, a worry for me. I'm not too worried about what I earn or anything. I'm uh, I certainly, um, you know, my favourite times are doing things that are really, really cheap, really. Like I love kind of like, you know, cheap street food and I love tramping and, um, you know, hiking and stuff like that. So um, that's not too much of a worry for me. The biggest thing is, yeah, that um, learning that ability to switch off um, and to take time out because your business will improve drastically if you can do that. You know, um, all of my best ideas come when I'm not actually working. They're actually when I'm going for a bike ride or a walk or something like that. Um, and you give your mind the space to think about things uh, and then a great idea comes up. Yep. And then I've spent two or three months convincing everyone else in the business to, um, to you know, that it's a good idea. Thanks, Stu. I'm conscious of time that we're kind of at the top of the hour. We do have two more questions, so I suggest we'll cover those and then we'll wrap up after those uh, after those two questions. Um, so the first one is a specific beer-related one for Todd and Stu. Um, and it's in the UK, the majority of the market is pubs, supermarkets, large wholesalers who are all difficult to get into. How have you driven volume in the UK given these barriers to entry? I think Stu should answer that first because, I mean, they're probably uh, in, in terms of play in those spaces a bit more than, than myself. So. Yeah, I mean, in some ways you're, you're driven a little bit by them. Um, so you do... Um, to a certain extent, you know, if you just happen to sort of like uh, hit the right sweet spot with them or something like that, um, you know, your volume can change considerably. Um, and for us as contract brewers, so we don't own our own brewery, it's a little bit easier for us to adapt because we can, you know, uh, pump up the volume considerably if, if needed uh, and then ease back uh, without worrying about having spent lots of money on stainless steel or, you know, floor space, um, you know, square metres in a brewery or something like that. Um, so having the adaptability, I guess, is the key thing for us. Um, I think we arrived just at the right time. So we arrived in early 2015 and the beer market really hadn't kicked off. Back then it was still the kind of like everyone in the beer scene kind of knew each other. Uh, and now it's really sort of taken off. So we've kind of ridden that wave to a certain degree as well. Um, but then it's got like Tub said, uh, and I see this like, you know, the coffee industry is far more advanced is that, you know, there's a lot more money being thrown into it now and, suddenly we have to be smarter because we don't have tens of thousands of marketing budget. You know, our marketing budget is pretty much um, our marketing manager uh, and she doesn't have a budget herself. Um, you know, she does have a little bit of one, but it's um, it's, it's very much uh, the sort of number eight wire, you know, mentality of, um, you know, thinking on your feet, what can we do? You know, how can we connect with people who we think, you know, would like to buy our beer? Um, you know, who are the people who are like us uh, in the right sort of age bracket, the right kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of your yeah, target audience, I get, guess, but also who are sort of, you know, socially conscious, like our team all are um, and our businesses as well. Um, and how do we how do we reach them and how do we interact with them, um, more importantly? And unlike Tubbs, we do a little bit of discounting, but we certainly, um, you know, the big thing is the personal approach for us as well. You know, our beers are all, you know, small batch, very personable, um, uh, and we are ourselves as well, and we do the same things where, you know, every single box that goes out has a handwritten message from my wife or I in it, and she does all the artwork, and I create all the recipes, so, you know, they are seeing and tasting our work, you know, every time they get a box, and they're also receiving a handwritten letter, you know, that's signed off from the whole team um, as a little thank you. So those things, to me, are, you know, more important, that sort of... Um, uh, customer attention I think you know it's so much easier to sell another box of beer to someone who has already bought it off you than it is to find something new and, and sell it to them. I think um, it's sort of different different to, to Stu because we're um, we're bringing the beer in we're, we're always going to be a premium product when you ship beer from New Zealand it's here so we make sure that we have 
the absolute best of New Zealand beer. We're not bringing over pale ales and pilsners really to to compete with a, a, a UK or European offering. Um, but we have a portfolio as well. The brewing and market does offer us an opportunity to um, to target some of those bigger volume plays and and adapt quickly if we want to you know, if, if we see a, a, an opportunity with the supermarkets or. Um, but the wholesalers is probably one of the biggest reasons why I set the company up. Wholesalers just you're on a list of beer. Uh, there's no passion or, or effort that goes into selling your product or telling the story of the brewery or the beer or New Zealand beer. So I felt that was probably the most so strong motive, or the strongest motivator was really to, to, to do that distribution ourselves and tell the story ourselves where we could be the gatekeeper for the brand and gatekeeper for, for New Zealand story. But uh, diversifying product and diversifying the market, um, you know, we sell more volume beer into Norway than we do into the UK. We sell kind of very top end and, and small sort of niche, I, I guess, offering in, in the UK. But our big volume plays are more in Norway and Scandinavia because of the price point. But but yeah, we have a, a, a diverse range. We have the ability to brew and market, um, which means we can normally meet most of those opportunities as they come up. Um, but yeah, I think... Okay. Yeah, Pub culture as it is, I really, I cannot wait to have a beer in the pub again. I cannot wait to, to get back. And um, I, I know there was a question we were mooted uh, before about what are you looking forward to drinking? I don't care as long as I can have a beer and hug whoever I'm having that drink with afterwards. Hopefully I'll know them. But, you know, but but that's the main thing. But no, I mean, we have horses for courses. We have about 70 different beers at any one time, so. Um, so that's going to bring us to the final question from Emma Gregory, which is, do you think it's possible to get your business going while continuing with a part-time day oh, job? yeah, definitely. Jesse, when would you then, do, how do you know when the right time is to make it, to go from part-time to full-time? Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's a question of like personal finances really, isn't it? Like to know how much you can survive on and how the business is tracking and like how much you've got in the business bank account, all of that. But yeah, I will say, so I have, I work with tons of e-commerce businesses. Those are my clients and like my star client started her business. She was a part-time teacher and she launched these baby mats. Um, you know, you know, it was a side hustle. She was just trying it out and she's now a multi, a multi-million pound business with several employees um, and she's just doing amazing. And yeah, she started that as a side business. So totally you can. Ecom's a, e-com's a great thing to get into as a side business. I think from my perspective for that, it would be time management and you'd be disciplined. So I think when I was working, for example, in the, in the for Honda and still managing Aaron and doing sort of working for him, um, it was interesting. He's in a different championship based out of Monaco. I was based, I was based in Surrey with Honda. So I finish at 100, 5.36, uh, go to the gym. It's really important to get your head right. Just take that switch off for an hour, hour and a half, like Stu said, cycling or something, whatever. Just get out there. Just for me, it was a gym for an hour, hour and a half. I'd come back, have my dinner, and then start on the management side of endorsements, contracts, uh, future for the next year, following year, everything else. And I'd work till maybe midnight. I, I am quite strange. I do get away with four to six hours sleep. I always have. So for me, sleep has never been a big thing. <laughs> it's a physical, I don't know why, but I can get away that I have for 20, 30 years on four to six hours sleep average. Uh, eight hours sleep makes me... Too much coffee. <laughs> no, no coffee. Not, it's, just, it's just the way I am. I think I, I'm just a strange cycle. And so, but it's still time management. But I still got to, still got even if it's four hours, eight hours, you got to get that. And that's how you are. But uh, tune yourself to your own thing. But the end, end uh, answer is it can be done. Yes, you, you can do it, a day job or a part-time job and have start your business or have parallel businesses. Nothing to stop you, especially right now, because you can work from home and do two or three things. And Todd and Stuart, I think you both started yeah. as, as part-time um, gig on the side. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, like, yeah, you're working from home. Your boss has no idea. Get into it right now. yeah yeah i mean obviously we did part-time as well and you know sometimes i wish i'd sort of moved um a bit faster to go full-time and other times i think i should have just stuck with the old day job um 
but yeah, you can certainly do it part-time. The key thing I think is to probably think about uh, what you can do in those hours and then how you want to fit that into what your business is going to be. Because obviously you can't open a cafe part-time, um, but perhaps you can, you know, you can do it in some other kind of way. Um, and it was easy for us to be part-time because we never owned a brewery. So, um, you know, we always use someone else's brewery. Uh, you can brew it anytime you want. Uh, and, you know, as we kind of like start to roll things over, we started to just use more and more, you know, trust the people that we're brewing with um, and work hard to find the right kind of places to, to brew um, so that we don't have to be in there all the time uh, and we can trust their quality control processes and things like that. Um, and, of course, that saves you millions of pounds as well. Uh, I mean, if we were going to set up a brewery right now to to do everything that we have planned in the next five years, uh, we'd be looking at, you know, at least three million pounds so um yeah just um do it do it the way you can do it and the way that fits you know your lifestyle and what you uh what your dream is i guess in that regard that seems like a, a great place to wrap up our discussion um so you know for everyone who's listening um first thank you for joining um second uh if you do have aspirations to go run your own business now's the right time to to go do it so um yeah, thank you to everyone for joining and particularly a big thank you to Tubbs, Jesse, Todd and Stu for, for joining us as well. It's been a really good discussion. Um, so thanks and take care. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.